Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. The Dr. Bill Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairment. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. And once again, thank you, Dr. Bill, for your, your expertise. Oh, thank you for putting these together. We're so mm-hmm. pleased that Brill Institute put these together, and Ayers LA is kind enough to record these. Um, I was informed that the lectures that we do for the Braille Institute are now one of the most popular podcasts that are listened to. So if you know of anybody who is interested in learning more about vision problems, they can go to www.airsla. That's A-I-R-S-L-A dot org or www.brailleinstitute.org and they can listen to many, many podcasts that we've done over the years. Mm-hmm. And this evening I'd like to especially thank Mr. Dick Burden from Airs LA for volunteering his time and equipment to record this program for us. This will be posted probably early next week. And I'd also like to announce for Airs LA that this coming Saturday evening, Airs LA is having a fundraiser. And this is their fundraisers that they raise funds so that they can continue to produce all of these different podcasts that they have and not charge the listeners a single penny for them. So if you want more information regarding this fundraiser, it will again be this coming Saturday from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Burbank Pickwick Gardens, where there'll be wine tasting, appetizer tasting, silent auction, and this year, Airs LA is also having entertainment from the Academy of Music for the Blind. These children are just incredibly gifted singers and musicians. So uh, I know I really look forward to listening to this Saturday. Now tonight I'm going to be talking about different types of retina conditions. And this is a very, very large topic, but we're going to try to narrow it down to make it a bit easier for most people to understand and relate when they learn of children who have other types of retinal disorder. The first thing is the anatomy of the retina. Now, the retina is basically a thin piece of tissue. It's almost analogous to Kleenex or tissue paper. The retina, it lines the inside of the eye. So if you were to cut an eyeball in half and you looked inside that eyeball, there would be a thin layer of tissue called the retina that lines the entire surface So in essence, it is analogous to the movie theater, the Hollywood Cinerama Dome. If any of you have been to the Cinerama Dome, it is where they have a large movie screen and it lines the inside of that dome. Now the retina is made up of very, very specialized cells and it's a very, very complex tissue because of the fact that it has over 10 layers When you look at this very thin tissue, you would never think that it has that many layers, but it in fact does have 10 layers. 
And within one of the layers are what are called rods and cone cells. And these types of rod and cone cells in the retina are the cells that absorb light and they then convert that energy into an electrical signal and they send that electrical signal to the brain and the brain processes it and that's how we're able to see. So when we do look at something, let's say that we're looking at a beautiful color painting, all of the information from that painting it enters into the eye, and those light rays focus onto the rod and the cone cells. The rod and the cone cells will then create an electric signal, and that is then sent to the brain through the optic nerve. So it is something that is very, very amazing that by simply absorbing these different light rays, the retina is able to send the proper series of signals and the brain is able to interpret whether it's a painting of the ocean or it's a painting of a vase of flowers or if it's a painting of something else. Now, the organization of the retina is also something that's very, very important to understand. These cells, which are the rod and cone cells, are very, very precisely organized. In the very, very center, the very center of the retina is the location of where the cone cells are, and that location of the retina in the very center is called the macula. Now, the significance or the importance of the macula is that this is the region of the retina that allows a person to be able to see small details. If you're going to try to read small print, you will move your eyes so that those small letters will then focus onto the macula. If you're trying to recognize a person's face, you will move your eyes so that those light rays from that person's face focuses on the macula. Or if you're going to look at the photograph or a painting, and you want to see all the really very, very detailed colors, you would move your eyes so that those light rays will focus on the macula. So the macula does something that's very, very important, and that is it allows you to identify details. It allows you to identify details. Number two, it allows you to identify colors. And number three, it also is what gives us our daylight vision. If we suddenly go outdoors and it's very, very bright, initially it sort of hurts our eyes a bit, then our eyes adjust. That is because the macula is then taking over that job of focusing on all of that very, very bright light. So when children have diseases, to the macula or the central retina, these children have difficulty identifying details. They may have identif difficulty identifying colors, and they may also have difficulty seeing under very, very bright illumination. So these children who have problems in the central retina 
often will need to wear sunglasses to make it much more comfortable for them to use their vision. Now, the region of the retina that surrounds the macula, that particular area is a much, much larger area, and that is where the cone cells are very, 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 very insignificant in terms of the number of cone cells in the purple retina. But in the purple retina, there are many, many rod cells. So the rod cells are what give us our peripheral vision. And the peripheral vision is the vision that we use to help us to maintain our balance when we stand up. The peripheral vision helps us to avoid obstacles when we walk so that we don't bump into doors or poles or things that are left on the floor. And the rod cells in the peripheral retina also give us our night vision. So if you were to go outside tonight and walk in the complete darkness, you would be using your peripheral retina in order to be able to see under the very, very dim lighting conditions. Another thing that the peripheral retina also does is it gives us the ability to see things that are moving. If you were taking a walk at night and you thought you saw something moving through the corners of your eyes, you probably did see that, and that's because the rod cells were able to see the movement of a, of a black cat that was walking alongside you. So, overall, these two very important cells in the retina are, are organized very, very specifically. The very center is called the macula, and that's where most of the cone cells are located. That gives us our detailed vision, our color vision, and our ability to see under very bright light. The remaining areas that surround the macula contains the rod cells, which gives us our side vision, our peripheral vision, our night vision, our ability to see things that are moving. But those rod cells that are in the periphery, they don't see colors very well. They don't see small details very well. And so they primarily give us an awareness that something is there, but we may not be able to identify it. So we could almost think of the organization of the retina as almost being similar to a dart board. If you are a person who likes to throw darts, in the center where the bullseye is, that's where the macula is with the cone cells, and everything around the bullseye is the peripheral retina where the rod cells are. So the first condition we're going to talk about this evening is retinopathy of prematurity. And this is a condition that if it can affect both the cone cells in the center of the retina, or it could affect the rod cells in the periphery. Now, what we have to think about here to understand this particular disease is that the retina is something that develops with time. In other words, as soon as the egg is fertilized by the sperm, the retina is not completely developed. It does take time for the retina to be developed. And within the retina, 
there are blood vessels. And these blood vessels, they bring in blood and oxygen and nutrients to the retina cells. And there are also other blood vessels that will take away all the debris and the waste. Now, these blood vessels are beginning to grow very early on after conception. And generally by the time of 32 weeks, 32 weeks of gestation, the blood vessels are fully developed. So when we see children who are born prematurely before 32 weeks and we look inside the eyes of these children, we notice something wrong immediately. And that is the fact that the blood vessels inside the retina, they're not fully extended out towards the periphery. If we look towards the center regions of the retina, we could see that there's blood vessels there. But way out towards the periphery, the blood vessels have not extended that far out. And what happens with these children is that these children also do not have mature lungs. So when these premature babies are born, they are often put in oxygen to help them to breathe and to stay alive. Well, within a few weeks, their lungs do grow and develop, and these children could be taken out of the oxygen incubator. And these children then actually go through a little bit of shock because at that time, the retina suddenly screams and says, hey, I don't have enough oxygen here. When the retina releases that signal stating that they need more oxygen, the blood vessels in the retina begin to grow. More blood vessels, but these new blood vessels, unfortunately, they bleed and they hemorrhage. And when these new blood vessels begin to bleed and hemorrhage, blood tends to scar those peripheral regions of the retina, and this damages the peripheral retina of these children born prematurely. So the main thing to remember here is that in retinopathy of prematurity, the peripheral retina is damaged first. And when the peripheral retina is damaged, it damages those rod cells, and as a result, these children may have reduced peripheral vision, and that may make it difficult for them to see where toys are located. Or if they're starting to crawl, you may notice they crawl and bump into things because they didn't see those things that were in the way. Number two, they will also have reduced night vision or reduced ability to see under dim lighting. So, for example, if you are coming home late at night, and you park your car in the garage and it's dark in there, and your child with ROP drops a toy, your child may not be able to see it as easily as you do, and that's because the rod cells of the child with ROP, they are not as functional as, as yours. Number three, children with ROP may also not have the ability to see moving objects as well as a person who has a healthy peripheral retina. So if the child's a bit older and you're going to play baseball or softball and you're hitting ground balls to your child, uh, some kids with the ROP, 
don't see that ball that's moving kind of quickly quite as well. Now, one of the things that happens today is that when a child is born prematurely, all children born prematurely receive an examination in the hospital by a retinal ophthalmologist. And the doctors are able to, first of all, look at the eye and identify if the child has retinopathy of prematurity. If the child does have retinopathy of prematurity, the ophthalmologist will then perform any treatment that is necessary. That may include using a laser to stop any of the bleeding if there's blood vessels that are leaking. Number two, they may also perform other procedures if they could see that scar tissue has developed inside the retina area, and they will use a special instrument to make it such that the retina does not get pulled off of the wall of the eye. In many kids with retinopathy prematurity, the scar tissue that develops, it grabs onto the retina and it pulls it, almost in the way that you might think of somebody pulling wallpaper off of the wall. If the ophthalmologists see that, they can perform treatments so that the retina will not detach. If the retina has been pulled off the wall and is detached, those regions of the retina are not functional. In other words, that child won't see using that part of the retina so surgeries can now be performed to reattach the retina onto the wall, and this will give that child the ability to use that region of the retina to see. It's very important that if a child does have a retinal detachment or a tear in the retina that these are treated right away because if you don't treat it, the tearing or the detachment will continue and eventually the entire retina will probably tear or detach, and that child will have no vision in that eye whatsoever. Now, these children are also at great risk of needing glasses. Many children who have been born prematurely are very nearsighted. And when they are very nearsighted, what it means is that they may only be able to see objects clearly if the object is within one or two inches from the child's eyes. We had a child come in today, and this child was born prematurely. The retina was saved by the ophthalmologist, but what we found was that the reason this child didn't look at things was because this child had a very high degree of nearsightedness so that anything beyond two inches the child could not see. And when we put the glasses on this child, it was just so, so rewarding because this child was so excited to be able to see all of these different things in the environment. So glasses will be prescribed for children with retinopathy of prematurity as early as one week of age. In other cases, we may prescribe a contact lens for a child and then in other situations, a child may also receive what's called an implant in the eye. And this is sometimes used if a child 
has to have cataract surgery, they will then put the power that the child needs to correct for the nearsightedness as well. So this is really high-level surgery, and this is something that is very, very simple for the ophthalmologist to perform nowadays. Now, there are other cases of retinopathy of prematurity when a child may have more advanced or more severe retinopathy of prematurity. In these cases, they may call it ROP level 4 or ROP level 5. And when it is at a grade level of 4 or 5, what it means is that the area where there is scarring or scar tissue, it extends even beyond the periphery and it extends into the central macular region. So for these children who have grade level 4 or grade level 5 ROP, it may be that their vision is blurred because there is scar tissue in the macula. And these children may receive surgery to remove the scar tissue or to reattach the retina or to repair a tear in the retina. And when they are then prescribed glasses, we often will see that their vision can improve significantly. You know, there are many children who have retinopathy of prematurity who are visual readers. And these are kids who walk very quickly and independently, and they perform all their activities independently. And the reason for this is that these children do respond very well to low vision aids. And what I mean by that is we as eye doctors can customize many different types of glasses to improve the vision of children with ROP. We often will use different colored lenses and these different tints will reduce glare and also enhance their vision further. We also see nowadays that we have many computer software programs and these computer software programs can magnify the print so that kids could see what's on their iPad or on their notebook computers. We have other types of software programs that will read aloud what the child sees on the computer screen to make it more efficient for that child to learn to read and to write and to spell. And we also have other types of technology that will allow children who have no vision or very poor vision to read and write with Braille. You know, there was once a time where myself, as a low-vision eye doctor, I really felt that all of my patients really deserved to wear glasses that I designed that improves their vision. And I didn't always think that a lot of these students would need to read and write Braille. But now that I am a person who is totally blind and I am learning to read and write Braille, I see there's a major benefit of learning to read and write Braille. And that is that reading and writing Braille is often faster and easier than trying to use your eyes. There were times that I would try to read things and my eyes would get so tired and so red and so irritated that I literally just would have to stop after 10 minutes. 
But when you're using your fingers and you're learning how to use Braille, you learn so many different techniques that you could read with two hands at the same time. There's other types of computer software that will allow you to listen to things that have been printed in Braille and the computer will read it out loud for you. So there's tremendous amounts of technology and I just sort of think of Braille as a fantastic language for people to learn and it is something that will make the lives of many who have low vision much, much easier. Another really interesting fact about people who read and write Braille. If you were to take all the adults who are blind or legally blind that are looking for a job, they want some type of work. The people who actually have jobs, 80% of the people who are legally blind or totally blind who actually have jobs, they read and write Braille, 80% of them. And I find that statistic so amazing that most of the people who are getting hired are those people who know how to read and write Braille. And why is that? Well, I think that part of it is that the people who have been taught to read and write Braille as a child, they're able to read and write faster than those people who have low vision and are trying to use their eyes. I know for myself, I could read faster reading Braille than I was able to read when I was using my eyes and holding the book right up next to my eye. The second thing is that people who read and write Braille, they can read and write all day long. They don't become tired, whereas many people with low vision, they become very tired after reading and writing for 10 to 15 minutes. And I think that these situations make those people less competitive. Whereas a person who reads and writes Braille, they have the ability to work faster and for longer periods of time. Okay, are there any questions thus far on retinopathy of prematurity before we go on to our next topic? Okay, now the next condition that we're going to talk about is... Lieber's congenital amaurosis. Lieber's congenital amaurosis. And Lieber's congenital amaurosis is another inherited type of condition that affects usually the peripheral retina, but it can also affect the central retina as well. In Lieber's, it's a genetic disorder in which the DNA genes do not produce the correct proteins, and as a result, the function of the rod and cone cells are not normal. For these children, it often affects the peripheral retina first, so they may not be able to see at all at night. They don't see obstacles within their surroundings. They have difficulty locating toys or food that may be on their plate. And when we measure their vision, we find that their peripheral vision is very, 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 very poor, such that their vision is similar to looking through a tube or a straw. These kids are also very, very frightened at times of the dark. And the reason for that is that as you reduce the amount of lighting, they are no longer able to see. 
so they often have night blindness. So with poor night vision, poor ability to see obstacles around them, these children are often very hesitant to get up and crawl. Many of them will just rather just sit in one location all the time because they're afraid that when they crawl, they're going to bump into something and hurt themselves. In other cases, the Lieber's congenital amaurosis may also affect the macula as well. And when it affects the macula as well, then these children also have very blurred vision. And they may be very, very sensitive to the bright light. Now, children who have Lieber's congenital amaurosis, as with all children with vision problems, they do need to be examined right away. Now, unfortunately, not all children, not all children receive an examination before they're discharged from the hospital. But parents will often notice that the child with Lieber's has something wrong with his or her vision. They may not make proper eye contact, or the child may seem to have difficulty following mom or dad's face. Or when you dim down the lights in the room, they just really get very, very upset. When there are these types of signs or symptoms, the child should be seen by a low vision doctor, and the doctor will be able to perform the examination and also prescribe glasses. For many children with Liebers, we could use a yellow or an orange lens on the glasses, and it greatly improves their ability to see. The great orange lens, as people often call it, gives these children more contrast to be able to see those objects. If they do have a prescription of nearsightedness, farsightedness, or astigmatism, we could incorporate that into the glasses and we also have lenses that will magnify everything that the child sees to make it easier for them to identify the details. As these kids become older, we will recommend that they receive orientation and mobility training to help them to learn to move their eyes and to scan so they can compensate for the loss of peripheral vision. At home, we need to increase the amount of illumination so that the child can see under dim lighting. And at school, we will recommend special types of desk lamps for these kids so that they could put it on their desks without bothering any other students in the classroom. And it will provide the illumination that that child needs to be able to read and write. The kids with Lieber's congenital amaurosis also do very well with the use of video magnifiers also known as closed-circuit televisions, CCTVs. And with these kids, we find that they usually are able to see the text in their books easiest if we set up the machine so that the background color will be either black or dark blue, and the letters will be white or sometimes yellow. So by making the background dark, it reduces the problems that they have with glare, and it really makes it easier for them to see. This also holds true when they're learning to work on the computer, where we can customize the settings of the background and the text. If you are working with a child who is learning to use a computer, it's also easier for them 
to be able to read text many times that is Arial font. These types of Arial fonts are a little bit cleaner, a little bit easier for them to see. Now, another type of condition that is similar in the same family as Leber's congenital amaurosis is retinitis pigmentosa. And that is often just abbreviated RP. Now, RP can be a inherited condition, and it can affect primarily the rod cells in the peripheral retina. If it does primarily affect the rod cells in the peripheral retina, these children will have difficulty seeing at night. They will stumble over objects if they're trying to walk. They often don't like being out at night. And playing sports is often very difficult because of their absence of peripheral vision. The difference between Leber's congenital amaurosis and RP is that RP usually will manifest itself when the child's maybe about a teenager, whereas with Leber's, it will usually manifest itself very shortly after birth. So both of these conditions, as is any retinal condition, they're really very, very difficult on the child as well as the family because the child recognizes that his or her vision is getting worse. They realize that they're not seeing these things as well. Or they realize that at school, they're walking and they bump into poles, or they can't see the dodgeball that's coming at them as well. And these are things that they may talk to their parents about, and their parents will take them to the eye doctor and If you're not a pediatric eye doctor, many times you won't identify these diseases because it's not easy to examine some children. Some children are very active and they don't want to sit in a chair long enough. So it's important that the children are being seen by the appropriate type of eye doctor. They should be seen by a pediatric eye doctor. Now, another type of eye condition that we often will see that affects the peripheral retina is the retinal detachment. And the retinal detachment is a condition where the tissue, the retina, it just falls off of the inside of the eye. There are many reasons that it may do that. It may do that because this is something that happens within people of this family. In other words, there could be a genetic tendency for the retina to detach. Number two, when people have a high degree of nearsightedness, the retina may detach. Number three, if a person is involved in an accident or falls down and hits his head, that could cause the retina to detach. That's why we're very, very cautious about allowing children to play soccer. Because many times when they headbutt the ball, that jarring can cause the retina there to detach. But when the retina detaches, it most often will detach in the periphery, in the area where the rods are functioning. And when the retina is detached, the patient will often see a flash of light. It'll look like lightning. And then afterward, 
the patient may then say they see a bunch of things floating in their vision. It looks like there's a bunch of flies flying in front of them. Or they may see things that look like spider webs that are floating. And then they see flashes again. Anytime that a child complains of seeing flashes or floaters, the child should be placed on his or her back and taken to a retina specialist or the emergency room. The reason that you put the child on his or her back is that this is the best position to try to keep the retina in the place that it should be. But if the child continues to run, continues to play, the entire retina could come off and then the child could become totally blind. If you go to the emergency room and you say, I think my child has suffered from a retinal detachment, that's a good way to get them to have an ophthalmologist come in right away. If you don't say those things and they see this child and they'll notice, this child doesn't look like he's in bad shape, he's not in pain, I don't see any blood coming out of his eye, I don't see any mucus coming out of the eye, he looks okay. Your child might be waiting there for hours. But if you go in and the child is lying down on his or her back, and you say, I think my child suffered from a retinal detachment. He was hit in the head and the seen flashes and floaters. The doctors and nurses who hear flashes and floaters, they become very alarmed. They know that that could be a retinal detachment. And retinal detachments are a major, major reason of lawsuits. The good news is that children who have retinal detachments and retinal deters, these are things that can be treated very, very effectively if they've been identified at an early stage. But if the retina detachment has been detached for a year or two years, and then they come and they try to have it repaired, it often is such that those cells are, are not functioning anymore. Now, let's talk about conditions that affect the center retina. One of them is called albinism. Albinism is a condition in which the child does not have the normal coloration to the eyes, the hair, and the skin. And when you see children with albinism, initially they could be a little bit startling to see because you just don't expect it. When you look at them, their their skin is so white that you could sort of see through the skin and you could see the blood vessels that are underneath the skin and such. When you look at their eyes, their eyes aren't brown or blue or green, but their eyes almost have this pinkish appearance to it. Now, in albinism, this is an inherited condition, so it is genetic, and in many cases, neither mom nor dad have albinism, but they might be a carrier of the gene, and their child then has a one in four chance of becoming an albino at birth. And the children with albinism, this primarily affects their central retina. So when it affects the macula, the cone cells are not functioning normally, and so that these kids, they do not have clear, detailed vision. Number two, they're often very, very, very sensitive to the direct sunlight. And these kids may want to wear a hat all the time or a hat and sunglasses all the time. But they usually have good color vision. 
So what this tells us is that even though the cone cells in the macula are affected among these children with albinism, there are still cone cells that are functioning normally. And this is why they do have normal color vision in most cases. Children with albinism usually have a high prescription for glasses. They need to be prescribed glasses early on, and we usually will prescribe for them a transitions lens material. The transition lenses are the types of lenses and glasses that will turn dark when you're out in the direct sunlight, and when you're in the house, they'll turn clear. The kids with albinism often respond very well to other types of low vision devices. We may give them very tiny telescopes that look like about the size of a pack of lifesavers. And this can allow that child to see 20-20 when they look far. In the glasses, we often will use a bifocal lens to give them more magnification so they could see all of their school print in the books very, very comfortably without having to have special large print books. Some children with albinism they may prefer to wear a red lens. Red sunglasses could be very, very helpful. Whereas with other kids, using a black sunglass or a brown sunglass works very well. The important thing is that children and adults with albinism are probably the easiest patients with low vision to help. They really respond very well to the types of low vision technology that the doctors can prescribe. So as a result, most children with albinism, they read and write visually. They play sports often very, very well. Many of them receive driver's licenses. Many of them go on and pursue the careers that they want to. But the point is, if they do not receive the help that they need early on, these kids have a very difficult time in the classroom and we see a lot of the kids really get in trouble. They just will not stay in their seat. They always go up to the board to try to read and see what the teacher's doing, and then they get dismissed from the classroom. So is there any questions right now regarding albinism? Okay, well, it's right about 8.30 at this time, and what I'd like to do is open it up, ask you to unmute your phones by pressing star 6, and if you have any questions about any of these retinal conditions we talked about, or if you have questions about any of the new treatments that you may have read about or heard about, uh, please feel free to ask, and I'll, I'll do my best to answer them. Okay, Sue, how about you? Do you have any questions? <laughs> I think you covered it so well tonight, Dr. Bell. We really appreciate this, and the lecture was just great. I, I've just jotted down so many new things I've learned tonight. So I just want to thank you, and uh, thanks uh, to Dick Burden for his, again, for his, his help with the engineering tonight. That's great, and the recording. Yeah, thank you very much, Mr. Burden. You're, you're an amazing man. <laughs> I really <laughs> appreciate you very much. Do, yeah. do any of you out there in the audience have any questions regarding any of these retinal conditions? Okay. Well, I'm going to turn it's it over perfect. to Sue because Sue's going to ask all of you uh, questions about <laughs> what other topics you would like for us to speak on. So, Sue? Okay. Well, I just, just one quick thing. Thanks again for all of you joining us tonight. And um, 
typically in June will be our last call for the year, and then we take a couple months off for the summer, um, July and August, and resume in September. But um, I just thought we'd take, throw it out there right now and see if anybody had any specific topics they would like us to Dr. Bill to cover in June. Um, we Usually what we do is like an Ask Dr. Bill segment or um, we talk a bit about just in general subjects and such. But um, if anybody would like to have a, if there's any questions or a thoughts anybody would have, we welcome your ideas or suggestions. No questions. This is Joni yeah. Bauer, but thank you very oh, much. Oh, Oh, good. Is there any area or topic or pediatric condition you'd like to kind of cover next month? Is there something on your mind at all? I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I will definitely right. send you an email. This is, this is really wonderful. I really appreciate you. you doing this. Our doctor goes pretty special. Thank you guys all so much for giving up your, your private family time and uh, listening to this. And just let parents and other teachers know they could come and listen to these at their leisure and they could even listen to them on their smartphones. So Sue and I, we'll we'll have a discussion and we'll come up with something great for next month. Maybe we'll talk about the best pizza restaurants. Good night, everybody. Thank you very much.